you, Mark. Thank you, Grace. Thank you all for singing and worship. We are continuing our, our study and our walk through the Gospel of John together. Today we will complete chapter 17. We have been, this will be our fourth week in this John chapter 17. Our Lord's Prayer um, as he closes the Upper Room Discourse. It's been said that the uh, Upper Room Discourse is the greatest uh, sermon Jesus preached, and now it's capped with the greatest prayer he, pr he prayed. At least that's recorded for us. There's so much of the praying that our Lord did that we didn't uh, get to hear. So many of the sermons and lessons he taught that we didn't get to hear or see recorded. But definitely this has been a, a pinnacle in John's gospel as it's so much shown us our Lord's heart. Gathering with these who are, have, he has poured his life into them for these three years, and now he is going to pour out his life for them on the cross. And he knows that is going to be a seismic experience for them. It is going to shake the very foundations of their world. And he's seeking to prepare them, making, helping them to know he knows it's coming. It is plan A. And God has made provision for them. And so part of that, as he closed his sermons, chapters um, 13 through 16, he then turns his eye to heaven and he prays. He could easily have done that silently, couldn't he? But he did it out loud so that they might know his heart and his father's heart as he prays for them. Well, we come today to uh, chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I encourage you to follow along in your Bible as I read. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I and them, and you and me, and that they may be made perfect in one, and that the word, world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I've declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. You'll remember that there are, if you will, three major sections of this prayer. In verses 1 to 5, the Lord, we often say, was praying for himself, but not in a self-centered way, but praying about the fact that he was going to return to the place of glory, to the, his Father's side. And we have to remember, Jesus, the Son of God, is eter the eternal God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. But God sent, the Father sent his Son into the world to take upon himself humanity. He did not cease being God. But he added on to that humanity. And, 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 so he's, and in doing so, he didn't set aside his godness. He can't. Or he would not be God. God cannot cease to be God. But he, he set aside the manifestations of his godness, the manifestation of his glory. He veiled it. Again, that Christmas hymn by Wesley. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. But now he's going back to glory, and he's praying about that in verses 1 to 5. 
And then in verses uh, 19, or verses 6 through 19, he turned his attention to praying for his disciples. Uh, we saw that in, when he says, I, uh, he's praying for them. And, and, and so verses 6 to 19 is his prayer for his disciples, the, the 11. And he says, I've kept these um, that, that you gave to me. Now, the son of perdition, Judas, was never one of them. But I've kept the ones you gave me, and I'm praying for them as they go forward. Now, in, in, starting in verse 20, he prays for us. He prays for us. He says, he, he prays uh, in verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, those 11 that are there at the Last Supper, the Passover meal with him. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's when he prays for you. That's when he prays for me. And notice how he describes first future Christians. Those who will believe in me through their word. Whose word? The eleven. The apostles. And so he's looking forward to their preaching ministry that will spread throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. Uh, in the book, we see in the book of Acts its beginnings and how the, how the gospel spread forward through the preaching of the apostles and those who heard the apostles and those who heard those who heard the apostles. But, but as that message will spread forth. But also through their word, those who believe in me through their word, as they wrote the New Testament. And in particular, we did not hear Peter, James, or John preach. But we have their word before us in the New Testament. The writings of the apostles and their close associates. And so Paul, we find, will maybe he says he becomes an apostle, as he says, um, a little late after the others. His associate, Luke, gives us Acts and the book of Luke. Peter, one of the apostles. His close associate, Mark, gives us his record. But we have in our New Testament what Jesus was talking about, their word. Their word. And he's talked about it before. He's already said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll do two things especially. He will help you remember what I said. That's important. Because they can get it wrong. If you grabbed 11 of us, this is a scary thought. If I took 11 of you, put you in 11 separate rooms and say, please describe to me what Drake preached this morning. We'd probably get 15 different versions. I mean, there, there would be things that would be missed, right? I mean, there would be some commonalities, but a lot of the details would be a little fuzzy. The Holy Spirit took care of that. He would call to mind and remind them of everything that happened and said that, that God wanted in particular recorded for us. And he would go on and teach further. And that's one of the things Jesus, you know, talks about. He, that that he's been, he's, he's, he can only teach them so much that he can only teach them what they were ready for. And now after the, that all pre-cross, but once the cross has come, and, and they've had their world shaken, and once the resurrection comes, and now he, he comes back to them and says, let me lay it out for you more clearly. The Messiah had to come and suffer and rise again. And then the Holy Spirit comes along and teaches them how Jesus fulfills the whole concept of a, of a sacrifice for sin, as a, as a payment for sin and as a substitute for sin, and how the Holy Spirit does all that teaching. That's their word. As, as, as they remember what Jesus taught and as the Holy Spirit teaches them, Jesus, this is their word. And Jesus says, he prays for those who will believe in me through their word. And that there describes two things about believers in our age, and believers in every age since Christ. The first thing it says that a believer, a Christian, someone who's saved, 
as someone who believes in Jesus Christ. They trust, and that word believe just doesn't mean we believe that he came, he lived, he maybe even died for sin. But that word belief has the idea of to put your trust in. I've heard examples of someone taking kind of maybe an antique chair and put it up here and say, you know, do you believe that you can sit in this chair? Well, sure. And then they say, okay, sit in it. You might look, oh, maybe not. Um, belief is actually not just believing the existence of the chair, it's trusting it. Belief, not, it's more than just believing that Jesus existed and even died and rose and again, the facts but putting your trust in him as your Savior, as the one who, who pays for your sin, who forgives your sin. And so the, they believe in me, he says, but notice again, through the word of the apostles. Saving faith is grounded in the scriptures. It's in the scriptures that we know who Jesus is and what he did and how we're to respond in faith. The scriptures point us to Christ. And so saving faith comes, God works in our heart to do that, but he works through the apostolic testimony, the apostles' testimony recorded in the scripture. It's in God's word that we see Christ. That's how we know him. You ever talk to someone that says, oh, I, you know, they'll tell you about Jesus and, that they like him or maybe don't like him. And it seems like a natural question is, how do you know what you know about Jesus? And a lot of times it's just rumors within our culture. Maybe. That's a scary thought. Maybe in a movie or something. This is how we see Jesus truly revealed. Through faith in his word. So, so two things I want to say about that. Our faith is a historical faith. It's, a, it's, it's, it's based on historical facts. Jesus is a, was a, a, a Jewish man born in Israel, lived in Israel, died in Israel, was resurrected in Israel. Historical events. It's a historical faith. And it's a biblical faith. We know those facts accurately because it's inherently revealed in God's word. And we know our response to those facts. To understand that just, he didn't just die as an act of terrible injustice. He died to fulfill the just demands of, God, of God's justice. As he paid for our guilt in our place. And so his, it's a, our saving faith is a historical faith and a biblical faith. Because the record was written by men guided by the Holy Spirit. Describes uh, Second Peter describes that even describing the Old Testament prophets in Second Peter one twenty one. Second Peter one twenty one. Peter records for us how the Holy Spirit works. Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So this book isn't man's opinions, and that's something we have to be very clear on because that's where the Bible critics and the and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll say this is just another human speculation. This is no different than Plato's writings or Aristotle's writings. Aristotle's writings. No, it is different. This is Holy Spirit-inspired writing. That, so God guaranteed that every word is exactly what he wanted to say. And that's why it's faith through this word that we come to Christ. So if you deny the authority... Of the, of the Bible, including the New Testament, you're actually arguing with Christ, who said he would, the Holy Spirit would come and teach them. And you're rejecting the promised message. This is, this is the word we need to believe in Christ. So as he prayed with those apostles, if they had fully comprehended what was going on there, he was praying for them and said, it's on you guys. You're going to be the ones who will put this record out as you preach and then as you write. This will be how people will come to faith. Through God's revealed word, 
through these men chosen by God to do just that. And then the fruit of that, this, this gospel spreading through their word, he goes on to say that that they all may be one. He's speaking of these future believers, you and me, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. He prays that we, all believers, through all generations, might be one as the Father and Son are one. How are Father and Son one? Well, it's kind of hard for us to understand that even the Trinity, the nature of God. And yet, how, are, how is it Jesus, the Son of God, is one with the Father? Well, they're one in essence. And that's in particular, there's only one God. So they're one in, in essence, in their very being. I mean, John begins writing this book. Remember, he starts there. In chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so that's just a powerful statement of, of the Trinity. He's God, and he's with God. How can, how can two persons, they're, they're one God. But two persons within that one God. And so they are one in essence, but they're also one in purpose, one in heart, one in, one in mind in terms of agreeing on all truth. That's the oneness of God. And that's, our, that's the oneness he's looking for us. And so as Johnson uh, expressed it well. What our Lord is really speaking about is unity. The unity of oneness of inner heart and purpose that comes from the possession of a common life in Christ. By the way, Johnson's exactly right. That's why I'm quoting him. It is the unity that was enjoyed by so many of the saints of the past who nevertheless lived in different earthly communities. We are one in essence. The Bible repeatedly refers to saving faith as, as, as having us, causing us to be in Christ. In fact, the common expression for believing in Christ in the Greek is literally believing into Christ. Saving faith isn't just facts about him. It's putting your trust into him. And in that, we are united to Christ. And if I'm united to Christ and you're united to Christ, then you and I are united to each other. We're one in essence. We, we, we share the same uh, born-again nature. One in purpose, one in heart, one in mind as we seek to please the Lord together. Many, many will notice he's speaking here of unity and not necessarily uniformity. Some will take a passage like this and say, see, we're all supposed to be in one denomination. And 48 denominations will stand up and say, that's right, it's us. No, no he's not saying that we must be uniform to be united. Uh, it's not all acting the same way, not even under the same leadership, humanly speaking, but rather united through our union in Christ. There's a unity in that sense without a uniformity. And I'll, you know, one of the great illustrations of that is a symphony. And um, if you go to a symphony, there's a whole bunch of people playing instruments, different instruments. They're sitting in different chairs. They're playing different instruments. They're actually playing sometimes different notes. But they're all playing the same piece of music. They're just playing their parts. That's a symphony. They are, there's a unity there, we hope. And the key is, right, they're following the one person up in front, waving his arms. I talked to a conductor one time, and he, he said, I, I wrestle with, you know, what, what am I really accomplishing? I stand in front of people and wave my arms. I tried to encourage him, but it's a blessing to us. Keep going. Um, but there's a unity as they follow the master, even though they're doing different things. So his unity here doesn't say, I have to be exactly like you or you exactly like me. Wouldn't that be terribly boring? It's often been said, if we're all exactly alike, some of, someone here is not necessary. You, not me. In other words, but, but if we're different, ah, then we're together. Maybe put it like in cooking. 
And if you only use one spice, it might be kind of overpowered, but you put a bunch together. Oh, that makes a one flavor that's, that needs every part. The, the unity Christ is describing for us is, is, is something we share with not only all believers in this room, all believers across this world, all believers across the generations since Christ. All who are born again, all who are indwelt by and transformed by the Holy Spirit, we have the same spiritual father. We're in the same spiritual family. We're brothers and sisters, and I think that's such a blessed privilege. We have, I always, I always marvel, we have such a big family. And so most of them we, have met, we haven't met. I wonder how long it's going to take in heaven before we actually meet everyone. But isn't that, it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? As we gather here, uh, even in this city, but then across the world, brothers and sisters. And, and the Bible says we're all in the body of Christ. Again, unity with diversity. Aren't you glad we're not just one big eyeball? You know, we, but there's a diversity and unity. And so he says, his prayer was that they may be one father as you and I are one. Then here's, here's the, the goal, result, purpose of that. That the world may believe you sent me. As we live out that unity, we have a common message in the gospel. It's in, our faith is in Christ, salvation is in Christ, and Christ alone. And so as we live out our unity, as we have that heart of together following Christ, the world is watching. Isn't it troubling when you watch TV or watch videos posted online? Isn't it terrible to see the disunity and the violence within just our country? Whether it be at a, at a ball game or, in a, or out in a, you know, Times Square, you, you see this disunity and disruption and chaos. That's not very satisfying to live that way. What a testimony it is when they can look upon believers and see unity. Uh, it, it, he says, as we live that unity, the world is drawn to Christ. It's like uh, light in darkness. The world's watching us. And they're looking, not that we all act the same, but that we're playing the same symphony. We're, we're walking together. Because we see each other as brothers and sisters. In 1 John, so John's first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he said this, He who loves his brother abides in the light. There's no cause of stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here he's talking about saved versus lost. See, when we know Christ as Savior, we're walking in the light, and that's seen by the fact that we love our brothers and sisters. By the way, do brothers and sisters ever have struggles getting along? Unless you were raised in an only family, I don't need to argue that for you, do I? <laughs> it's kind of a marvel we can reach adulthood without killing each other sometimes. And yet, we're family. We're family. And, and, and you know what? The world is lost in darkness and chaos. And as we walk together, we offer hope. So that's just a reminder to us of our walk in unity. Fellow believers within our families, the world's watching and needs the hope we can give as we show them Christ. He goes on, verses 22 and 23. And the glory which you gave me, Jesus speaking to the Father, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. 
I in them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me as you've loved me. You've loved them as you loved me. Isn't that amazing? The Father, I understand why he loves the Son. My struggle is why he loves me, and that he loves me as he loved the Son. How can that be? Because I'm family. In his mercy and grace, he adopted me into his family. He made me his son. As Christ is the son of God, we too have been adopted to sonship. And we've been given a new nature. That's that idea of born again. It can also be translated born from above. Spiritually born. Dead made alive. 2 Corinthians 3.18 in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul writes, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding us in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory into glory. Just as by the Spirit of the Lord, God the Holy Spirit is transforming us to be more and more conformed to the glory of Christ. First Peter 1.4 describes the inheritance of a believer. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. We've been brought into an inheritance, into God's family, and that includes a transformation of our nature as well as his welcoming us into his home. So Christ speaks of our union with God through Christ. As we are in Christ, we are a part of their divine unity, if you will. Jesus didn't come, and here's the key. So do you see what he's saying is, trust in Christ, salvation, is not just a, he didn't come to teach philosophy. He was, you ever see these cartoons about the guru, you know, the guru sitting up on the top of a mountain and people going to him for counsel. He, he, he wasn't coming as a philosopher. He wasn't coming as a social engineer. He was coming... Not only to forgive our sins, but to actually transform us, to make us new, to change us, to make us a new creature that the New Testament describes. And that new life is in union and communion with Him. Like I said, and Paul goes, and Paul, one of Paul's favorite phrases you read through his epistles is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So because of that, that's what he's describing. He says, the, the glory which you gave me, I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Do you recognize that power in your life, that, that reality in the Christian life? See, that's the struggle I think so many across this land and across the world see being Christian as growing up with, in a family that called themselves Christian. You, you know, so you see this in the world's news, and especially like in the Middle East, you'll hear them describe, well, these are Christians, these are Jews, these are Muslims. They're not really talking about necessarily their faith. They're talking more about a, a, a cultural heritage a lot of times. And some people will say, are you a Christian? Well, of course. You will find me every week, and I can point to my pew, and I'll point to my church. Sitting in a pew, even every week, doesn't make you a Christian. I was going to say it makes you comfortable, but it often doesn't even do that. <laughs> but, but rather, trusting in Christ is being transformed from, from death to life. To be given a new nature like his, not, not that we're God, not that we become God, but, but it's a new nature. In 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Paul writes, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Trusting in Christ is God turning the light on in our heart. And as he turns the light on, we see Christ in his glory. We understand who he is. Fully understand, 
No. But savingly understand. He is God who came, took upon himself humanity, and in that humanity he died for my sin, rose from the dead, and he calls me to trust and follow him. I see him in his glory. But Paul, notice how Jesus said, but I want them to see me in my glory in heaven. The glory, the eyes of faith that see him in his glory. To quote the Bible, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait till we're in glory to see him. Verse 24, Jesus says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. You loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus is looking again to his being in, in heaven, in the fullness of his glory, no longer veiled glory, but in the fullness of his glory. And here again, he's, pre he's praying not just for these 11 with him, but for every generation of believers. Up to now and beyond, I desire that they whom you gave me, and once again he's talking about, you know, Lord, these are the ones you gave to me. And so I want to keep them. Children will argue that sometimes. I want to, I want to keep my toy. Well, I need it. You gave it to me. When Jesus is saying to the Father, you gave them to me. And now I'm coming home, and I want to bring them home with me. So that they might see me in my glory, that they might have the joy of seeing the fullness of my glory. Notice he, he, he began this whole chapter with a prayer to be restored to his place of glory. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus said to the Father, I have glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I want to come home and once again unveil the glory. And now he prays that, that his people, those who have trusted in him throughout all generations, might be the ones given by the Father, the elect, will be with Christ in heaven to see him in his glory. So that's his desire. And some will translate that his will. And some have called this his last will and testament. I want my people, with me, with you, in glory. That's his desire. He's praying that we'll be with him in glory, to see him in glory. And every time a believer goes to be with the Lord, it's another answer to his prayer. You ever have a problem? We have a problem here, though, because sometimes... We're praying that they'll stay with us. And Jesus is praying they'll come home to him. Spurgeon meditated on that and said this in his morning and evening devotions. Every time a believer mounts from this earth to paradise, it is an answer to Christ's prayer. A good old divine remarks, many times Jesus and his people pull against one another in prayer. You bend your knee and pray and say, Father, I will that my saints will be with me where I am. And Christ says, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, will be with me where I am. Thus disciple is at cross purposes with his Lord. The soul cannot be in both places. The beloved one cannot be with Christ and with you too. Now which pleader shall win the day? You had your choice that the king should step from his throne and say, Here are two supplicants praying in opposition to one another, which shall be answered? Oh, I am sure, though it were agony, you would start from your feet and say, Jesus, not my will, but thine be done. Our Lord longs for us to be with him in heaven. Remember, he began early on in chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you. Why? that where I am, there you may be also. 
That's chapter 14, early in the upper room discourse. And now at the, toward, at the end of it, he's praying again, Father, I want them to be with me in my prepared place. His longing is for us to be there. And I've said before, you can, Spurgeon said that you can describe heaven in one word. J-E-S-U-S, Jesus. The beauty of heaven is the glory of Jesus. You know what? For all eternity, that will thrill our hearts. As we have said goodbye over recent months and years to loved ones, those who know the Lord have blessed our lives and enriched our lives, and yet so often I have said and thought, but we would never ask them to come back here from there. And I've often thought, poor Lazarus. And I said, some of the, some of the old fathers said, you know, when, after he was brought back to life, he never smiled again. <laughs> you know, you could see him every time at dinner, he'd look at his sister, just shake his head and say, what have you done to me? Wasn't going through that once enough? And, and my dear sisters, I love you, but this ain't the glory. How that truth, that, and the biblical word is hope, and that, that doesn't mean I hope it's true, but it's an assured confidence. How that should flood our hearts with comfort. Oh, they're missed. I know why Jesus wanted them with him, but I wanted them here too. But they were surely given a choice. We wanted to be there and seeing his glory. And I wouldn't want to take them from that for a minute. I would just say, Lord, is it okay to be envious? And in your time, I want to join them in your presence, delighting in your glory. That gives us comfort for those who are there. And may I say, it, it, it gives us comfort when we are on that doorstep. The process of dying It's not always easy. But for the believer, the outcome of dying is glory. We don't need to fear that. We pray for mercy in the process and thank God for the outcome. Glory. Glory. To see him in his glory. We've seen him in his glory in the eyes of faith, but we shall see him as he is. And First John says that's why we have to get transformed so we can, we can see him as he is. Glory. So many have thought about heaven. May I just read you some quotes? In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. C.S. Lewis. Thomas Watson, one of the Puritans, the sight of God's glory humbles. The stars vanish when the sun appears. We can enjoy looking at the stars in the sky and say how beautiful, but once the sun comes up, you can't even see them, can you? That's what it'll be. That's why we're not going to be running to find Moses and say, you know, tell me about this or that. You know, in a couple of million years, maybe, but wait a minute. I'm savoring the glory. Come back to me in a millennium. John Blanchard said, heaven is not a conditional reward, but a consummated relationship. It's, it's, it's the fulfillment of a relationship begun in faith. C.S. Lewis, joy is the serious business of heaven. That's a phrase to think about. The serious business of heaven is joy. Martin Luther, I would not give one moment of heaven for all the joy and riches of the world, even if it lasted for thousands of thousands of years. Another one writes, It is not death to close the eye long, dim, long dimmed by tears, 
and wake in glorious repose to find eternal years. That's not death, that's life. A.W. Pink, one breath of paradise will extinguish all the adverse winds of earth. Archibald Alexander, Christ is the center of attraction in heaven. William Plumer, heaven will chiefly consist in the enjoyment of God. And then he goes, another time says, without God, heaven would be no heaven. If Christ were not there, it would not be heaven. Get me out of this place. And so Jesus prayed that we would be with him. If you know Christ as Savior, he's prayed that for you. And if you have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust him as Savior, can you see what he offers and calls you to, invites you to? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And heaven will be your true home. In his final verses, verses 25 and 26, he really is no longer requesting, but he continues in prayer. Oh, righteous Father. I think that's the only time Jesus ever calls him that. Righteous Father. And that seems to emphasize his justice, not just his holiness. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me and I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. The world, again, usually uh, often means that organized system of rebellion, that society on earth. So not the globe, but the earth dwellers who reject him. The world has not known you. There those, in one sense, we live in this world, on the world, but we're not of the world. We're not of those who reject him. But Jesus says, the world hasn't known you, but I've known you. Do you think the Father knows that? Again, he's praying out loud for the reminder of his believers. As we, as we maybe pray over breakfast on Sunday morning that our children will be listening and attentive and obedient in Sunday school. We pray that out loud as a hint. He's praying out loud for his disciples, but I've known you. And these have known. You sent me. Again, fundamental to Christian faith is believing that Jesus is God come sent from heaven. We see there are two persons of the Trinity already. God the Father sending the Son. Again, that's how the book begins. Here's the contrast. Jesus knows his Father and those who know Jesus, those who believed in Jesus, know the Father. John 17, 3. This early on, we pointed this out, where Jesus, in a sense, describes eternal life. This is eternal life, John 17, 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And what is the fruit of knowing God? Verse 26. I've declared, is my translation, literally, it's made known. I've made known to them your name. And will make known that the, make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So it goes back to the idea that he's earlier, I've told them, I've made known to them your name. Again, that's not a, a secret code. Name involves all that you are, all of your essence. All of your attributes, all of your character and personality. I mean, you, I've made you known in your fullness, is what he is saying. The Lord Jesus made known the fullness of God to his disciples. And notice it's an ongoing ministry and will make it known or will declare it, my translation reads. So that seems like that's the teaching, ongoing teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. He brought them as far as he could. Now, the cross, now the resurrection, then the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell them, and the Holy Spirit uh, takes up theology 102 and continues the course of showing them the name of God, who he is, 
and, and, and what he's like. The love with which you loved me, that, that the love with which you loved me may be in them. The result of, of make God, making God known to us is that God's love will be in them. Notice that, that the love with which you love me may be in them. The love the Father had for the Son will be in the disciples, in the followers of Christ of every generation. We'll have God's love in us. As we know God in his fullness, his love in its fullness will be manifest in our lives. And that's part of the transformation. Again, that's what the world is looking for. One, as I read the news and look at the news in our day, I keep being reminded of the, of the scripture that says, in the last days, love will grow cold and lawlessness will be increase. And I have to think that as love grows cold, yet the, God's people, the love burns on and only grows. Now for some, they'll hate that. Turn out that light. But for some, they'll be drawn. All to know true love. And he's saying, as they know you, they will, they will, the, the love God the Father has for the Son will be in us. And I in them. God will dwell within us. Christ will dwell within us. Colossians 1.27. Colossians 1.27. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us is the assurance, the guarantee of glory. Who are the ones who go to heaven to be with Christ? Those in whom Christ dwells now. Those who are born again, as some have said, those who are born once die twice. Those who are born twice die once and enter into glory. So as we look at this, we see again and again, don't we, how often he prays for the unity of God's people. As believers, we are in actuality united. There is no such thing in God's mind of an isolated believer. A true believer is a part of God's family. If we don't live that unity, we are living in a very unhealthy way. My finger is, is my finger, and if I should detach it, it's still my finger, but it's not going to, it's not going to do well. But we need to grow in our manifestation and our experience and, and expression of that, that love. Unity of the believers is a vital part of who we are. Notice how often Jesus mentions his glory. Glory basically is the manifestation, manifestation of his deity. He longs to be restored to communion with the Father and give full expression to his deity. He's been holding it back. He's been holding it back. And what an amazing prayer, isn't it? Our Savior longs for us to be with him, savoring his glory, delighting in his glory. I think that as we see him in his glory, and we'll think back to his 30 years on earth and think of how he was treated and how it ended, how right even more this glory and the worship of heaven will seem to us and delightful. Until that time, he wants us to manifest his glory through our loving unity. A watching world will be drawn to Christ as he accomplishes that unity in us. Unity, glory, major themes. Uh, J.C. Ryle summarizes this prayer this way. Let us only remember that the four things prayed for by our Lord are things that every Christian should daily desire. Preservation, sanctification, unity, and final glory 
in Christ's company. Let me read you a little story. The stunning news flew like arrows through the corridors and chambers of the palace. The king was dead. He had been found in his bed, having died a natural death in his sleep. Where has he gone? asked one of the king's shrewdest advisors. Why, to heaven, replied the others. No, said one gravely. I have served this king for many years and have traveled with him extensively. He loved to travel and would talk about his trips extensively beforehand. Every detail was planned and anticipated, but I have never heard him say a word about traveling to heaven. It was a journey for which I saw no preparation. I am quite sure he has not gone to heaven. That's a good test for us. Jesus is eagerly anticipating every follower of his to be in his presence. What are some of the evidences? We've talked about them. Love, unity, growth in the glory of Christ. But if someone is truly anticipating the trip of a lifetime, don't you think they would talk about it? Don't you think it would be part of their preparations? That's a good story to maybe examine your own heart. Are you on the road to heaven? If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, hear his call. Come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I could add, and glory. For those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ as, as Savior, hang in there. He's called us to be unified and busy in service now. But the time will come. I suppose he'll turn to the Father and say, bring him home. Let him see my glory. Father, we thank you for the glorious confident assurance, the glorious hope we have in Christ. Thank you for your love for us, your mercy as we meditate on these passages. Your kindness to us is beyond all measure in our comprehension. May we be faithful stewards and live for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.